This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We've all been there, traveling way, way out of our comfort zones, tilting our heads funny as someone who isn't speaking our language, and trying and failing to act out simple questions. Some of us have even been unlucky or lucky enough to catch things when we travel. Wonderlust, the love bug, or dare we say it, the dreaded Bali Belly. But today's guest caught something rather unusual when she was halfway around the world. Yes, amidst her travels, Ashley Streeter was bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. After visiting Johannesburg, Ashley was devastated by the inequality that ravaged most of the city. In her words, she was shook. While others put their blinders on, Ashley rolled up her sleeves and turned her outrage into action. Since making it her mission to end global poverty, Ashley has worked alongside World Vision and the UN and achieved phenomenal success in the social entrepreneurship world. Not all heroes wear capes. In today's episode, Piers, Ashley Streeter encourages millennials everywhere to intentionally identify their values and use it as a guiding force for their decisions. Rather than chasing someone else's definition of success, Ashley believes that we have to forge our own path that's aligned with our own values in order to be fulfilled. If you're wondering how to forge your own path, determine your passions, or how to let go of the expectations you've placed on yourself, go ahead and press play on this life-changing episode. Welcome to the Peers Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, you know, you and I connected over LinkedIn very recently, actually. And when I looked into you and all of the phenomenal work you're doing it that you've done in the international affairs, the social equality space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I'm really excited for today's conversation. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Of course. So before we dive into you and your work, I want to start with a question that I often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, what did your parents do and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Mm, great question. So what do my parents do in an employment sense or a bit of everything? Yeah, in, in terms of career and... 
Yeah, so my dad works in um in agricultural botany. Um and my mum has had a bit of a varied career. So she started her career in banking. Um and how it forms into my interests that in nineteen ninety one before I was born, uh, my dad actually got posted to Johannesburg in South Africa. Um wow. and after taking six months um doing long distance, my mum eventually decided that she would follow. Um but prior to that, my uh, maternal grandfather used to work for Pan Am, the airline. So, and my my dad was born in Trinidad, raised in Jamaica, did his high school years in Wales, um, and then <sighs> mom's born and born and bred Palm, and they met in the UK. So, my parents had quite an international journey, and that's what I was brought up with, and that's what's really informed my perspective. Um, I know it gets bounced around a lot, but essentially, as a as a global citizen, is that I was raised to recognise that I'm part of this broader world, not just my immediate family or my immediate community. So that's been incredibly form informative, um, and formative in everything that I've done. Mm. I love that, and I think there is so much value in that. You know, I think that uh, I mean, many of I mean, us two, we both grew up in Australia. You know, Melbournians and whatnot, and it. it we're almost in a bubble here because we're so far removed. You know, we, we kind of just, you know, we, we stay on our island and unless we really, like, put ourselves out there or go and travel or, you know, meet different people from other parts of the world, we don't really know. We're quite sheltered, I would say. So I think that's really obviously now the internet has made that a lot different, but still I think to an extent we are. So I find that super interesting. What do you... In those early years of kind of high school and, and, and primary school and whatnot, what, how did that kind of impact those years, like that knowledge of that there's more out there? Well, my light bulb moment actually came when I was 11. So, uh, again, had been raised with a bit of travel. So it's just myself, my mum, uh, my dad and my sister out here in Australia. We moved when I was, um, yeah, nearly four years old. So a while ago, I won't, I won't disclose how many years. Um, <laughs> when I was 11, we were fortunate enough to spend Christmas in Johannesburg. And that was my first time traveling to a developing country. So somewhere that wasn't just Europe or back home to the UK. And in Christmas 2005, we visited Soweto, which stands for the Southwestern Township. And it's the largest township, uh, which the average person, I guess, would know as, as a slum. Uh, but it was the largest township in Johannesburg. And that was the first time that I really came face-to-face -face with inequality. And not just inequality, mm -hmm. but with my own privilege. And it was a very uncomfortable spot to be in, mostly because 11-year-olds don't have that kind of experience. And when I came back to Australia, I felt inherently uncomfortable with what mm -hmm. I'd seen and what I'd learnt. Um, but I had nobody to share that with. Nobody in my peer group understood that experience. And you know what? Fair enough. So it actually took me quite a few years before I started to act on that uh, through school. I mean, my parents had always volunteered and done a lot of that stuff when I was growing up as well. Um, but in high school, I started working with the Adult Youth Foundation, uh, which was providing school supplies and assistance for people, for children and families from underprivileged areas. Uh, and then moved on to the more international development space, which is more where I wanted to be, uh, focusing on things like the 40-hour famine and, um, yeah, and other things that really just focus on that that global perspective. Mm. I love that. And it's so, it's so crazy how that pivotal moment 
happens for you so young. And, you know, even when I was reading about some of the stuff you've done around the 40-hour film and World Vision, that kind of stuff, and, and the, the roles you took on as, as directors at such a young age, um, you know, I think it was at university or just prior, um, and it, it, it's phenomenal. It's so crazy how it was shaped so young. You know, do you ever remember like speaking to your parents about that situation and how you felt coming home or did you kind of just keep it to yourself? It's funny you ask that actually. I've never reflected on that. I should, I mean, I don't, I have an awful memory. So I don't <laughs> have those conversations, but if I asked them, they would probably have mm. some kind of recollection. Um, given I went to India with World Vision in 2013 and it was my second time being there. Um, have spent a fair amount of time developing countries. But when I came back, I struggled a lot with um, basically return culture shock. So yes. if you're going to the country and feeling uncomfortable in the country, um, it's similar, but you feel very uncomfortable coming back to the country mm. you originated from. And I was living in a very uncomfortable space that severely impacted my mental health for probably between 9 and 11 months. So that was when I was... 19 so I'd be surprised if there wasn't something similar mm-hmm. when I was 11 because it's a very confronting experience but no I actually don't mm-hmm. have any particular conversations mm-hmm. you don't know how to process it mm-hmm. and that's exactly right isn't it I mean I it's funny as you talk about your experiences because it just brings me back t- to mine obviously my very different and, and what 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 not but I I remember when I was 16, I headed to China for the first time, kind of rural China um, by myself. And like there was rural and then there was like the town next to it where the school was. I studied Chinese and I remember just, you know, the, the small tiny little apartment I was in with that family who was very privileged considering you know, the population and whatnot. Um, it was kind of the number one high school in that area or whatever it was. And I was just shocked. I just, I just by everything. It was that culture shock. And then as you said, like, when you come home, you kind of look around and you reevaluate and you think, wow, we've got it so good, you know, and, and it's so funny because as you talk about your experience, it just brings you back to mind. What do you think, how do you think, obviously that experience you shaped you, your, you and your career dramatically, you know, how, how do you think that we can, so many of us though have those experiences where we go to developing company, countries and we just realise the poverty and, and just how different it is there and then we come back to our normal lives. We may have a culture shock back into our normal lives, but we don't, many of us don't do much about it. We just kind of go back into our jobs and whatnot. How did you kind of gain the courage, I would say, or just kind of the momentum to go, you know what, no, I'm going to dedicate my career to this? I don't really remember it being a conscious decision. I think when I was in South Africa that first time, to me it just seemed natural. There was, mm. there was comfort that I was struggling to reconcile. And I think at that time I just made a very consciously unconscious decision that that was what I was going to work to rectify. Just I wasn't comfortable with the world that I was living in and it's not that I ever thought I knew the solution. But, again, I think it comes back to upbringing, my, having mm. grown up in a family that's done a lot of volunteering and, and, and even to this day my parents still engage in a lot of volunteering um, and sometimes some pretty outlandish volunteering. So when my mum was in South Africa the first time, she wasn't legally able to work, so she was volunteering visiting British expatriates in South African prisons. 
So, wow. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, I was raised um, where my parents were always very open-minded and happy to have conversations. And I was able to learn a lot about what these issues mm-hmm. were. And I think that's when I became very interested in structural inequality. Mm-hmm. So going on then to study international relations and politics, a lot of that was about coming to understand the structures that exist and the ways that they create and entrench inequality. And I think that's where my longstanding interest in things like politics come from as well. Mm-hmm. That a lot of that's about power relations. Um, and my particular interest was how this, these macro systems really impacted these micro day-to-day interactions that people have because these big international policies have some really real make-or-break consequences mm-hmm. for people on the ground. And living in a democratic country where I've got a lot of privilege, I think I felt a real obligation and still do that if you've got a platform, you should be using it and thinking mm-hmm. critically, learning to understand these issues and that's something I think Australians on the whole, as you mentioned, can get so much better at is that they go to these developing countries and not all the time, but I think a lot, too many of those interactions still remain about, um, still, still focus on a sense of self and self-gratification. So mm-hmm. if you look at something like volunteerism, there's been a lot of information put out on the dangers of trafficking in orphanages, the detrimental impact that um, orphanage volunteering has but people still go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And I just can't help but think that if you took some time to do some research and really understand this problem, then you could also have a better understanding of how you can be part of that solution. And I think that's a better, mm-hmm. we as Australians need to get better at doing some of that thinking. Mm-hmm. How did you come to kind of understand these fundamentals? Was it through your degree? Was it just kind of through your own interest of, of researching and, and kind of understanding how we operate or through just the people who you, you know, you know, your friend's family? How did you go to kind of develop this perspective that's so unique? A lot of it, again, I think was through my parents. Uh, my parents, uh, I don't think it would be wrong to say my parents are quite intellectual. And there was encouraged <laughs> um, an intellectual curiosity. So I always enjoyed, you know, I grew up watching a lot of documentaries watching programs like Q&A and Four Corners and there was always a discussion to be had around those issues and I just I I was a massive nerd through my high school years but in the best kinds of way because I love learning I love having my perspectives challenge I love having conversations with interesting people um, and I as far as I can I will actually try and seek that better understanding because I just find it incredibly interesting so it was a pathway that I was always going to go down. And since I've done my undergrad, I've done my honours, I've done my master's, and I'm sure there's more study in the pipeline. <laughs> um, but it does remain, and, you know, learning is, learning is a lifelong process and there will always be more that I learn. And I hope through that learning as well, a lot of my perspectives will be challenged or mm. developed in some way. Mm. I find it so fascinating even just listening to, to what you're so passionate about. I mean, it's so evident and you've gone on to do all these phenomenal studies. You know, I think the common problem, I, not problem, but often people come to me and they say, you know, I just haven't found my thing yet. You know, I don't, I don't know what I care the most about. I don't know what I should be doing with my career. I feel quite lost. And it's, it's always such a hard problem to tackle, I guess. But I, I would 
absolutely love to know what you would say to some of our peers out there listening who, you know, they're, they're listening into this episode and they think, well, she really knew what she wanted to do at like 11 maybe. Obviously, I know it wasn't like that, but, you know, you did kind of, you know, stem from that. And I have no idea, you know, what advice would you give to them? Hmm. I actually remember going through this with my, my younger sister in high school and I think I, I do think I'm very fortunate that I knew from a really early age what I wanted to do. And to be fair, what I initially wanted to do was human rights law. And obviously I don't, I don't work in human rights law because um, I realised that it, wasn't, it just wasn't for me. And going through my high school careers counselling, I had my eyes set on this law degree and this law degree um, and didn't get the score to get into law but fell into an arts degree. And I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And sometimes I think it, it, it's okay. It's, it's okay mm-hmm. not to know. Um, I find it so surreal that in high school you're talking to these 17, 18-year-olds and the narrative that they put forward is, well, why don't you want to know what you want to do with the rest of your life? And, oh, my mm-hmm. goodness, you're 18. Of course you <laughs> You know, for those who do, that's wonderful. But you don't know what you're going to want to work on for the next 60 or 70 years. And it's it's kind of great that you don't mm. because you will change as a person throughout your life. That means your interests will change, your passions will change. But I think the best thing you can do is try new things, um, accept things outside your comfort zone. And I say that as somebody who absolutely loves my comfort zone. It takes me a lot to drag myself out of my comfort zone. Um, but just seek new experiences, look for new information, go and see that documentary that you didn't think you were interested in, go and speak to somebody who's really passionate about whatever that issue is. Mm. Um, it will probably help you understand a new, a new perspective and you might find that, that perspective is one that you're very happy to take on board or you find a new issue that you'd really like to work towards. Mm. I love it and I couldn't agree more and I think that I think that there is too much, almost too much emphasis placed around, you know, I've got to know straight away exactly what I want to spend the next 50 years doing. But, and there, there is so much, so much value in just embracing the journey and embracing that you may not know and embracing that you can just learn from other people. I think that's something that you've most definitely done. So something I'm interested to know is who was one of your early mentors? So obviously you did these phenomenal studies and now I know you're working for the government in, in politics, um, in policy, sorry. Um, and I, yeah, look, I'd love to know, like, who was one of those early mentors of yours who kind of pushed you, kind of, yeah, or empowered you or inspired you to do what you do? This might sound really strange, but I don't really remember having one. Yeah. I think because I was, I was so motivated within myself and I'm fortunate that I have always been a very motivated, proactive person. And, you know, I, I know I keep coming back to it, but I do think in part that was the way I was raised. I said I wanted to do something and my parents said, great, go for it. Mm-hmm. So I was always mm-hmm. raised with this mindset. And, again, I know that that's a real sign of privilege as well, but I was always raised with that mindset of, if you want it, go and do it. So I just mm. went and did it. And mm. I remember, so I first got involved with World Vision when I applied for an internship there. And I, when, I rep- when I applied, actually, I remember mum and dad saying, oh, you know, but you're working a lot and you're studying a lot. And I thought, yeah, that's fine, but I'm, I'm going to apply anyway. I'm not concerned about this issue of balancing things out because this is more important to me. I'll cut back on hours at my part-time job. And, yes, I know that this is unpaid, but this is what I want to be going after, so why wouldn't I throw my hat in the ring? Um, 
And I think that was one of the first times that they really said, oh, you know, just take it easy, taper back. And I just thought, no, screw that. Yes. <laughs> and I'm a big advocate of tapering back now, but mm. <laughs> back to myself and gone and done that, that that was the most formative thing that kicked off my international development experience. Mm. And I, I love it. And you're, it's funny because when I read about that, you know, you were, you really did kick off everything that you're doing now. And, it, you know, I read that it kind of spurred that movement around the G20 agenda, the work you did with kind of World Vision. And then, you know, you kind of went on to, to really take on board that. It was a director for campaigns um, role. So talk to us a little bit about that period there. Like, how did you, how were you handling that? Obviously, you know, your parents warned you, but you took it on anyway. What? What was involved in that in that period of your life or in that role? To be honest, I think a lot of that did spur from the reverse culture shock. Mm. So some of it came from obviously a place of motivation and wanting to do better, but a lot of it came from a place of desperation because I felt mm. so desperately helpless and like such a small pawn in this chessboard of what I'd seen that I was just so desperate to do something mm. that could work towards solving the extreme poverty and these structural inequalities that I witnessed. So in that sense, a lot of what I was doing at the time, I'll be the first to put my hand up and admit, just wasn't sustainable. I was working <laughs> on the ground and was just very caught up in this need. Mm. And I think in, in that came almost quite a dangerous need to be successful. Like I, This mattered too much to me to fail. And I know this is a space a lot of people fall into. It's definitely a space that I've been in more than I care to admit because when something matters that much to you, you, you get it done. But often mm. the way that you get it done isn't the healthiest or isn't the most sustainable or perhaps you're not actually solving the problem in the best way. You're just so concerned about that outcome. Mm. Um, so fortunately for me, I did have that support group around me and that structure of World Vision and VGen World Vision's youth movement and a wonderful team to work with. But at the time as well, the movement of Victoria wasn't very active. So I was also quite fortunate that as a proactive person looking to get more involved, there were opportunities for me to do so and to step up. But a lot of it was learning on the job. So yeah. some stuff went well, some stuff really, really didn't. Um, it was a huge learning curve and I hadn't had much experience in leadership, let alone volunteer leadership up to that point. So it was a really steep learning curve. But I've always, you know, I, I love people. It's definitely, um, leadership definitely favours the extroverts. I think introverts have a lot to offer to leadership. Um, but as extroverts, I think we, we do fall into those roles more naturally. Um, and I was fortunate that there was, there was space for me to do so. Mm. I love that. And then after that, I saw that you moved kind of in, into, we moved states. You know, you moved to Canberra and, uh, and you went on to, to complete your master's. What, how was, you know, where did that decision come from for you? Was it just kind of like, I've, I've, I've had this leadership role now, I've taken this on board and now I'm, I'm almost ready for something new? Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that. So on the theme of failures, when I finished my undergrad, and again, I was still, feel, I was still floundering a bit and feeling a bit desperate. So I applied for a few master's programs, um, initially enrolled in a master's for international development at RMIT. Um, and then I have to admit, ego got in the way a bit, so I accepted an offer from Melbourne instead. Mm. Um, 
I go through a bit of an existential crisis. So this reverse culture shock had led to um, a breakdown in a five-year relationship with my my high school boyfriend. I just finished uh. my degree, and you know, degrees and, and school are quite structured. And you finish that, and I went, "Oh my goodness, where? What am I doing? Where am I going?" And I, I thought it was, you know, again, I thought you needed to know. So I was desperately yeah. grasping at something that was going to give me that structure again, which was this master's program. And in the end, I ended up dropping out of that master's program in the first mm. week or so because I just wasn't in the right headspace for that at all. And it was a really, mm. it was going to be a really expensive mistake. It was the yeah. other if, if I did <laughs> it. So um, made that decision, which was a bit hard because it did feel like a failure, but it was one of the best decisions I've made. So I took six months off. I was working full-time, partially for the 40-hour famine team with World Vision. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up going back and enrolling in my honours. And the only reason why I did that was because I didn't know where else to go. Mm. And I wanted to keep studying. But I didn't have a particular master's program that I was ready to commit to because, again, they're mm. pretty damn expensive. Yes, they are. <laughs> and honours was a cheaper mistake to make. And that's a really mm. crummy reason to enrol in a line of study, but that was, that was the reason why we went for an honours. And I mm. absolutely loved it. So mm. I women, peace and security. So looking at the intersection really between um, gender and international development, women as peace builders had always had an interest in, in gender. So did that for a year, um, then took some time off, went backpacking for three months, just with mm. my best friend from high school, just cleared my head for a bit, but knew I wanted to keep studying. So while I was doing that, I thought, yep, I'm going to put in some master's applications um, applied four courses, two in Melbourne, one in Sydney, one in Canberra. I knew I wanted to keep moving roughly in this direction of women, peace and security. So in the end, um, was got accepted to all of them, uh, which was great because I did work really hard in my honours. That was a great outcome. And eventually decided to take the one at ANU. It was the only diplomacy course in the country. I was very interested in how to actually operationalise international relations and try and pull that into the development space. And in the mm-hmm. era of things like climate conferences and the Paris Agreement, diplomacy is very much still being utilised for a development perspective. So I thought mm-hmm. it was a good way to try and combine those two things and that's, that's what landed me in Canberra. Mm. I always find it fascinating hearing how you know, our entrepreneurs, our entrepreneurially minded interviewees, you know, get to where they want to go or, you know, kind of pave this path for themselves. And I think it's something that stands out for me for you is an idea around just kind of taking that step back, letting go of the ego and going, you know what, I don't know yet. Let's just take some time. And I think, as you mentioned, alluded to before, that idea of like, we always, it's like this pressure or something that we kind of take on that we have to always be performing that we have to always you know be exceeding you know limits or whatever it is and and always be that on the on the next on to the next thing and I just think it's so important for us to talk about this I want to I want to deep dive into a bit more around expectation and and how you were able to let go of that and just go you know what it's okay it will work out and I will figure it out like how did you get yourself in that heads headspace and what able to do that if I'm being entirely honest I don't think I ever did so Mm. I I wanted to keep studying um and you know I do enjoy telling people now that I've dropped out of 
Monash University once, Melbourne University twice, and Sydney University once. Like I've I, 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 a lot of UTs um, because I just didn't know, and I, I knew I wanted to keep studying. And the move to Canberra was terrifying because I finally, you know, I'd, I'd had a new partner and you know and had this discussion with me and we'd only been together a couple of months when I decided that I wanted to move um that was a great conversation to have particularly because I was only backpacking at the time um, it's really scary to back yourself and I've made a lot of decisions particularly through that period of my life and I don't I don't think I'm entirely out of it to be honest but making a lot of decisions out of fear because you, you just think yeah, I, I need to move in this particular direction or hey I've had the success people keep expecting this of me how do I keep operating at this standard and I know that's something that I've, I've had to do a lot of thinking about recently and again really just going back to well actually where you know what do I want to achieve where are my values where am I best placed to make the change that I want to see you know as a, as a middle class tertiary educated cis straight white woman there are spaces yeah. that I can and should be using my voice in and other spaces where I should really be stepping back. So I think doing that really critical analysis. Um, one of my resolutions, I'm not the big one to make resolutions, but one of my resolutions mm. here was to try and make less decisions out of fear. Mm. But I think, you know, it, it's a real process. I'm not sure that that's something I will ever be truly comfortable with, I think, as long as we keep this pressure, and a lot of it's pressure that we put on ourselves. Um, you know, you've got your external and your internal pressure, and I, I tend to believe that our internal pressure can be so much worse mm. than external pressure. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about how to minimise that, but I think I'm still a really long way off just cutting myself that mm. slack. Mm. I mean, aren't we all? I think, yeah, yeah. aren't we all? I think it's, mm. I just love your new year's resolution I just I honestly so identify with it and I think that even for myself you know it's it's always what's the next thing how are we going to be bigger and better how are we going to crack into this market or whatever it may be with the business or with the podcast and I think it's almost like you unless you take a moment to stop you you honestly don't even realize you're making decisions out of fear and I think that I think that you know, there's so much that, I mean, me personally, I have to learn in terms of that. And there's so much that that I think just us as, as millennials and as, you know, Australian, um, privileged Australians ha- have to take on board in terms of that. And so I find that really interesting. So I guess I know you're not an expert and neither am I, but I'd love to know a couple of tips that you're using to kind of come from a place of, of you know, make decisions not based in fear and, and just you know, come from that place of place of truth and just make acting on your values and all that kind of stuff. What are some tips that you can give us? Hmm. I've been doing a lot of thinking around this, particularly in the last six months or so. So at the end of last year, I was doing the Foundation for Young Australians, Young Social Pioneers program. And one of the things that they kept emphasising through that was the importance of values. And I think I, I knew that, but hadn't done a lot of really conscious, intentional thinking about that before. And in one way, it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a few relationships of, you know, of, of various nature at, at the time. Um, and it made me really evaluate some of the things that I was doing and where I was spending my time through this values-based lens. And in a way, it was, it was really, um, really eye-opening. It was also really confronting 
And mm. I ended up making pretty significant decisions around what I was doing and what direction I was moving in and, and actually what, what sort of outcomes I wanted to see and how I was getting there. And that was pretty um, pretty confronting mm. process to go through. Um, and it, it's quite difficult to actually take that step back and have to do that self-analysis and probably confront some parts of yourself that you're not comfortable with or that you haven't um, that you haven't realised are there and, and have to do that really intentional thinking around what you don't like about yourself and, and who you are in that. So some, some tips around that. Once I identify what those values were, I've started trying to use that as a better decision-making framework and parameter, not only for my own day-to-day behaviours, but for some of that goal setting. So what came out of that actually is a, um, a new initiative that I started up called Her Infinite. Because I realized mm-hmm. one of my main values is community and it's supporting and it's allyship. And again, coming from a background as a campaigner and a movement builder, it's about bringing people with you because you can't move mm-hmm. forward if there are big portions of the population stuck behind. Um, and also knowing that women are less likely to be heard, less likely to be celebrated, less likely to be backed when they're starting things like the incredible work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. It focuses on community creation. So I've spoken to a lot of young female non-binary change makers who've said that actually they don't have a space, like necessarily safe space online to have conversations mm-hmm. about failure and days that suck mm-hmm. and things that have gone well. Yeah. And someone's having the conversations about successes mm. can be crueler than the conversations you have about failures because people can be incredibly nasty about both. So looking at that, building that sense of community, um, eventually we'll move to offline workshops, hopefully a bit more on a mm. peer-to-peer horizontal skill sharing level to really recognise the skills and expertise that we have as young female change makers. Um, and a hashtag, which will be hashtag she's our change, it will focus on profiling young female and non-binary change makers, hopefully giving them a bit of a platform, really elevating and amplifying and celebrating um, yeah. what they're doing. So that really came for me, taking that step back and going, wow, what I really value here is, is community. So yeah. how am I best placed to focus on building and amplifying that? I love it. Oh my goodness. And it's so funny because I saw that on your LinkedIn profile, but I couldn't see any further you know, explanation of it. So I, you know, I was like, oh, that's, that must be new, but I love that. And it's so, it just is, is the prime example of what, ha- what can happen when you do take that step back, you know, when you do kind of reevaluate and think, okay, well, where am I going? And, and, you know, is everything I'm doing aligned with my values? And if not, well, then I've got to actually make those hard decisions. Mm-hmm. So I loved something that we talked about prior to today's episode, which was, around that idea of you having to make that tough decision last year where um, with an organisation that you started, I think it's called um, Jarisi Australia. Um, You were the co-founder, COO, and you started at, I think it was end of 2017 and ran it last year. And then at the end of last year, you you exited. You know, talk, talk to us a little bit about that experience there you know, why you decided to make that exit and how you've grown from that experience. Hmm. A lot of that came because um, I realised I wasn't being true to my boundaries. So last year, I started my first full-time career job. Um, I was 
recognized as the ACT Woman of the Year and then the Forbes uh, yeah. yeah which is um pretty phenomenal and incredibly humbling but it meant that also suddenly my time was in more demand there were lots of speaking opportunities um mostly unpaid which is quite difficult as well because I meant I was balancing really a lot of a lot of extra work um so speaking opportunities it was working full-time it was running this organization and we had a, a few different programs um, and starting from scratch, never, never having done that before, took a mm. lot of work and, again, massive learning curve. Mm. Um, I was doing the board traineeship with YWCA Canberra uh, and, and a, f- a few other bits and pieces on the side, mm. which was a lot. I was trying yeah. to maintain um, a, a relationship and be a good partner and a daughter and a friend and a sister and all those other hats that we, particularly as women, wear. And I burnt out really badly, um, twice actually. So the first time it happened, I somehow managed to persevere, but Mm. wasn't well. So I was was no longer sleeping. I wasn't digesting food. I was drinking too much. Um, I was never present. There was always a phone or something else going off. And it was evident to things like I stopped asking people questions because I was never present in a conversation I was always off thinking about this thing which obviously at the time I must have thought was more important mm. it's not a, you know again it's not being true to that value of people and community um I've got a chronic pain condition and that was flaring up a lot so it was occurring anytime I bend my knees um and I've lived with that for about 11 years but it got to the point where I couldn't I couldn't get up out of chairs I couldn't roll over in bed at night without waking myself up uh I was diagnosed with extremely critical insomnia which I've also had on and off for years but brain activity was so off the charts when I was asleep that they basically said it's no wonder you're tired you're not really going to sleep wow things that started cropping up um and then on top of constant brain fog and anxiety Mm. really it just just wasn't just wasn't functioning I wasn't functioning mentally I wasn't functioning emotionally um and it was a pretty awful spot to be in and that really made me think about the boundaries that I tried to draw and the fact that I hadn't respected any of them at yeah. all and as such I'd also created this expectation for other people I was working with that no I was going to be on 24-7 because I wasn't yeah. sleeping I would reply to your email at three o'clock in the morning uh, I would yeah. do all these things and it was just unsustainable and I think as, as an activist and an advocate, we do have a duty. Self-care is, is the duty that we have to ourselves and to the communities that we're trying to serve. And again, going back to values, I realised that I'd become a person that I really wasn't happy being. And I felt quite mm. embarrassed about that and actually a fair bit of shame about how I'd been behaving and how I'd been taking other things for granted. Like my, my partner was working as a personal trainer at the time. So because he was home more during the day and I was you know, working 14, 15 hour mm. days, he was doing everything around the house I wasn't you know I wasn't even washing up after dinner mm. I wasn't respecting his time either and that was something I was quite embarrassed about I wasn't calling my parents so I just had to stop and think look I want to create this change but is this how I want to be doing it is this mm. what is this who I want to be um and I realized that the answer to that question was a really really clear no it's not mm. and again that was a pretty confronting realization to come to um, so I had to make some pretty pretty difficult decisions about that. 
And then when I left, I had a real sense of identity loss because I poured so much myself into this. And again, I think we have this pressure to have an identity. You know, when you go into a room and network and people say, right, who are you? You want to to have that thing and say, I'm this, I'm that. And so much of our value gets tied up in that title. And it's something I felt leaving World Vision as well of what's my value add? And I had to go through this process of realising that actually my value add wasn't a job title that I had. My value add was who I am as a person. It's the skills that I have. And as much as I've told myself that, you know, I still think I, I still believe that about 80%. It's still part of me. And I still think it's you know, a little bit of ego that just says, yeah, but, but who are you? Well, what's your title? So I really try to take a step back and, again, just do some really critical thinking around actually it's okay not to have a title. I need to be comfortable in myself not having this title and being in some other spaces for a little while and then coming back to just something that is true to who I am that's moving forward in the right direction but is doing it sustainably. Because my aim and, you know, I went away for three weeks over Christmas to go and visit family in the UK and if I hadn't left Australia, I don't think I actually would have been able to take a step back in the way that I needed to. And I needed to take a pretty drastic step back. Like something had to change. I needed a massive circuit breaker. Um, and having that three weeks away was clarifying in the best kind of way. I started sleeping again. My pain levels went down. Um, being on a different time zone everybody meant that I wasn't on call. I could just go and do things with my parents and, and with Nick and my sister. And it was just... It was just refreshing. So the reason why you wouldn't have seen anything on LinkedIn about her infinite is because I'm taking mm. it. Um, yeah. I want to make sure that it's done properly. I'm not running into things mm. and then trying to play catch up. You go into it and you, you do it properly from the get-go. So, again, there's a lot of learning. Like I don't have a background in things like uh, social media and I've still got a bit mm. of refreshing to do around things like uh, online campaigns, but I also don't want to sign myself up things that I know I can't commit to just yet so I started a new job in February still in the government but a very different change of pace different um different hours that I'm working uh slightly different expectations from being on a graduate program to not being on a graduate program so just making sure that all that's calibrated to be successful but also making sure that that definition of success includes personal boundaries not just external outputs Mm. I so appreciate you sharing with uh, this with us, Ash. I think that it's, I mean, I think that it's so evident you've done so much of the self-work, you know, for you to sit here and just be like, I, you know, I was experiencing this, this, and reel them all off. I mean, that is hard to do, you know, admitting it to yourself is hard, let alone admitting it on a podcast, you know, so I commend you for that because I think so many of us resonate. Yeah, I just think so many of us resonate with what you're saying. I mean, when you were saying that stuff, I could brings me back to burnout periods that I've had, you know, and and times where I've thought, what am I doing? Like I've turned into this person I don't even want to be. And it's just, I think that as you mentioned, unless we do take that conscious step back and actually take some time or you know, it doesn't have to be going overseas. If you just take the weekend and just, you know, go into the bush or down to the coast or whatever it is, you know, just to really evaluate. And I think that that is just so valuable. And I'm so excited to to share your story because I feel like it's going to help so many, so many people, so many of our peers out there listening. So 
Okay, great. I love that. And I'm so excited to see what you do with your new initiative. And I couldn't agree more. I think that idea of just, you know, chucking it out there and trying to do it all fast and all of that is just, it's just not sustainable. And it's just, as you said, like it, it's just not manageable. Mm-hmm. So I, I once again commend you on that as well. Taking your time for it. I'm so excited to see what you do because I know it will be phenomenal. And we will obviously be following everything you do here at the Peers Project. So I'm so excited mm-hmm. for that. Awesome. So it comes from really mm-hmm. knowing what your definition of success is. And on the whole, success is still very much is very much quantified by external outputs it's defined by awards it's defined by things that perhaps we shouldn't actually be striving for and it sucks because sometimes you see people getting this recognition and when that's how you define success you're sitting there going why isn't that me oh my goodness you know this is a this is available for for young people I've just turned 25 should I should I have been in that space the fact that I wasn't recognized does that make me a failure does it make what I've done less valuable so it's also taken a real calibration, I think, of and and some real reflection actually how I was defining success and how I continue to define success. And I think that's a conversation that on the whole we we need to get better at having, particularly in the startup space. We've got this real culture of heropreneurship. And again, going going back to this whole what's your title, there are some people that have started things up and they're going really, really well. They've identified a great niche, they're making some incredible change. But then other people that have started up things and haven't actually thought critically enough about the problem and their value statement and whether they're actually doubling up on initiatives that already exist, in which case it's a poor use of resources and a poor attempt to resolve an issue. But there's this real thing that a lot of people have about what that title is. You know, is that title CEO? Is it executive director? Is it executive founder? So, and I think a lot of that, again, just comes back to our definition of success. So, again, just... Mm -hmm. You know, I've needed to do a lot of thinking about that. Um, yeah. I don't think I'm at the other side of that thinking, but it's definitely something that's good to come back and reflect on from time to time. I think this, that's so powerful coming from, you know, I'm going to pull out the title with a Forbes 30 under 30 nominee. You know, I think that it's so true. I was just nodding my head. You guys can't see me, but I was nodding my head at everything Ash um, was saying. And just because I'm a, totally a culprit of it, you know, we see these lists, we see these uh, these awards, whatever they may be, and we think, why aren't we on them or, you know, what are those people doing that I don't have or whatever it is? And, and we almost judge ourselves, you know, and it's, it's not healthy and, it, and it, it, does not, it does not in any way empower us to do, to like step into our genius and to do what we're meant, we're meant to be doing, you know, what we were brought here to do. So I love how you mentioned that. I'm also just super conscious of your time and I know you've just gotten off a flight and whatnot. So I will start to wrap it up here, even though I think you and I could talk for days, which is awesome. (laughs) Love it. So look, Ash, as we come to the close of today's episode, I firstly just want to acknowledge you for all of the awesome work you've done and that you're doing. You know, you really are an example of that for our generation of, of just taking ownership for yourself and taking responsibility of for yourself and where you are right now and always being curious to learn how you could be better and how you can, you know, just develop yourself as 
you know, as a person so that you can better serve. And it's so cool to see all of the epic work you've done and just your personal development throughout this journey. And so we really appreciate you for that. Well, thank you. And look, it's, I'll be the first to put my hand up because it hasn't been easy. A lot of it's come with, um, you know, mental health challenges. I've definitely gone through stages where I've really battled with anxiety and a lot of that's really come down to this this pressure, right? It comes back to this pressure we put on ourselves. Um, Going through the reverse culture shock, there were definitely elements of depression. You know, I don't think I was depressed, which they tried to tell me I was, but I knew it was a product of circumstances and was something that I was going to have to proactively work to get through so again just having this this focus this year for sorry this focus on health and happiness so mm. I set the bar pretty low 10,000 steps a day you know because of my pain condition mm. I struggled to exercise but just going for a walk um, ideally not taking any phone calls having your phone on do not disturb or on flight mode and it's a real mm. fun sponge cutting out alcohol has made mm. wow length in particular and just overall quality of life because I was worried I was forming some pretty crummy habits, like going home and having a couple of glasses of wine and catch up with people, do some networking, and you always catch up over a glass of wine. So mm-hmm. just making sure that the habits I've got actually support the lifestyle that I want to live. And sometimes those habits aren't fun, like being in bed at mm-hmm. 9.30, <laughs> but I know I'm a better person for doing them, unfortunately. I couldn't. <laughs> no, I love it. I couldn't agree more, Ash, and I, you know, as I said, it, it's just we, we can take you as an example of how we can better ourselves, how we can develop if we're experiencing any of that. And, I, you know, many of us are, that anxiety, that pressure, that, those expectations that we put on ourselves that just aren't healthy. And it's just so empowering and inspiring to see someone like yourself, you know, just really taking that step back and, and evaluating and being so honest and open about the whole process. So once again, you know, we really appreciate you. Thank you. I was talking to a colleague when I was um, just got back from the US, the Commission on the States of Women Conference at the UN, um, and she's an academic far more accomplished than myself. But what we did discuss was that thing around failure, and we both committed to making failure boards and actually mm. things, put it up to be like, hey, I failed at that, and that's good because I backed myself and I gave it a go. So, you know, watch this space. You might see who failed. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny that you mentioned that because over the weekend, and this is crazy, I literally, I, I recently turned 25 last end of last week and uh, yeah, it's, it's so gruesome. Um, my birthday was on Friday. So yeah, March 15th. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Happy birthday. Sorry, I missed that. So, did you turn 25 also? Yeah, yeah, on the 14th of March. Oh, my gosh, yay! Oh, my God, my birthday, <laughs> Sorry for everyone listening and getting overly excited. Um, but I, I recently, over the weekend, part of my reflection was to make those fa- – it wasn't a failure board, but I just made a list of, of different – whether it was ventures I've tried in the past, because this whole entrepreneurship journey has been a whirlwind or whatever it was, and I literally wrote them out. And I wrote, like, the learning next to the failure, and it, it was the most – like therapeutic exercise and I think just so necessary you know so I totally totally identify with with all that you're saying yeah, that's so awesome so, that's three hours of my birthday crying um, I'm wondering what I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm absolutely going to take that on I think that's so healthy to do oh. that failure and learning and you know what we wouldn't be the people we are today if we hadn't actually gone out and failed and that's really so, 
It is. It's so positive and I love that we can have this conversation like that and hopefully everyone's finding value out of it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So the final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Peers Project, and that is what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? What isn't the value, I think, is the, you know, it's, it's kind of as simple and as complicated as that. For, for me, it's something I find incredibly energising. Um, you know, from having conversations like this and getting to talk about the things that I love with people I admire um, and people who are also doing amazing things, I think there's so much value to add to that. And it's great that we're passionate about different things. You know, I will never be passionate about real estate or <laughs> investing. And it's great that my partner is. It means that I don't have to be. Um, but, you know, I, I think it ultimately makes us a more enriched society. And I think it makes us better as people because we are energized and, and just switched on and pursuing this topic. So I think that everybody has something. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love it. I love it, Ash. We've had an absolute ball. I so appreciate you. I know everyone's going to find such value from our conversation. And where can people learn more about you and your work? Oh, good question. So um, LinkedIn, uh, Ashley Streeter, I think it is. I should update that. Um, I recently started up a Facebook page for people to like, Ashley Streeter Jones, and that's part of my attempt to try and, try and create some boundaries around social media and compartmentalisation. Um, or on Instagram at activist Ash. So I try and keep all of them up to date, but it is a lot of work. So somewhere between the three of them, you will find the most up-to-date versions of something. But any of those. <laughs> and please get in contact. It. It's nice to hear from people who are going through similar journeys or even who just, just want to have a chat about some things. I'm always open to having a conversation. I love it. I absolutely love it. We'll link those up in the show notes. And, you know, Ash, thanks so much. It's been an absolute blast. I cannot wait for people to listen to this conversation. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at the Peers Project. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, Peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>